Welcome everyone. Welcome to tonight's satsang. And uh, I always like to begin by uh, remembering my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began every program by saying in Hindi, Subko varisanmane kesat premse hardik swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that's the essence of spirituality, to welcome uh, other people with love. And I want to tell all the people in Radio Land that we haven't forgotten them, and uh, I'll welcome you all at the end of the program. It's the way we get you to watch the whole program. <laughs> but uh, that, was, uh, that was incredible, the darshan, because um, Girish came up with this idea of using, uh, oh, who was it? It was Gargi. Gargi came up with it. How did you come up with such an idea? It's very really clever. Okay, well, oh my God. Do you have to call them? No, I, I, Apple do this thing that make it easy. Wow. They become hearing aids. I use, uh, I use those little uh, earbuds. earbuds and, uh, t and a phone. And, uh, and despite the ambient uh, divine sounds of the chanting. No, that's not true. Just here. Just here. Just here. It goes out online. I understand that. I understood that. I was worried that it would go out everywhere. Well. Yeah, they can hear. Only around here. Those are the people that can hear you. So very good. Anyway, um, <clears throat> tonight um, uh, I'm going to look at some Western yoga. Um, but before I do, I thought I found this beautiful selection from, from Baba's writings. Uh, and I wanted to share that, and then we'll get to the rest of the program. <clears throat> Baba wrote an essay called The Liberated Life of Siddha Students, which uh, I read early in my stay in his ashram back in the early 70s. And it, uh, it blew my mind because he talked about those of us who are students of his, Siddha students, that's what he called us, uh, as though we were realized beings. And I realized that simply to be in relationship with a great being like that, and a connection with such a powerful lineage, is in some sense to be already at the goal. So this is what Baba writes. He says, the Siddha student knows that everything is the pure light of consciousness. He has completed his sadhana. Even to be as a Siddha student is to have completed the sadhana. He has contemplated Mother Chitti that is, the divine consciousness, and established her in his heart. He knows directly the identity of the self and the absolute. He is blessed and worthy of being honored by the world. He has recognized his own self in all the many different forms. He sees all the other people as forms of the self. <clears throat> he considers everything as chit-shakti-vilas, 
as the play of consciousness. Um, and that's the title, of course, of Baba's spiritual autobiography. He's established in wisdom, ever free. He's found the divine joy of the absolute. And when I read this, I thought, you know, is he talking? You're talking to me? You're talking to me? I'm not like that at all. I'm neurotic and hopeless and everything. And I realized that he was speaking to the essence of me, the highest self of me. So when he says that, he's speaking to that part of us that's already in that place. And the rest of it has to be gotten rid of, purified, and so on. He says, such a Siddha student is liberated while still in the body. The mother and father of such a one are also blessed. He regards alike both praise and blame. Very hard to uh, be equal-minded in praise and blame. Most of us like praise, uh, not blame so much. He accepts worldly treasures, pleasures when they come to him, but he's not attract, attracted to sensuality. In the, the path of Shaivism, one doesn't shun the world. One accepts what comes naturally, but one doesn't pursue. One accepts what comes and allows what goes. He is liberated while still in the body. This is called in scriptures Sahaja Samadhi, the natural state, the state of natural liberation. Baba says he does not see the universe as the universe, for he knows that it is solely the play of Chitti Shakti. The universe is not matter but consciousness. He sees the light of Chitti, the light of consciousness, in friend, in enemy, in all beings. Even though this person may be an enemy, he knows that the essence of that person is divine. We're playing the role. In life, there's always friends and enemies, just different roles that we play. He worships the whole universe as God. Such a one is liberated even while living in the world. This is the refrain. Such a one is liberated even while living in the world. He lives with everybody and yet is associated with nobody. He lives completely, he's in relationship but unattached. He has dyed so deeply in the color of chitti that no other color can affect him. It's interesting, the theme of being dyed comes up later in the program. You'll see it just by accident. He, so deeply, his mind and his heart is so dyed with the highest truth, is so infused with it that he doesn't get brought down by material considerations. He is drunk with his own self. He is in love with his own self. He is content with his own self. And that was a teaching I got from Baba. Contentment is both very near and very far. Our minds always want, 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 endless yearning. As uh, Nimkoli Baba once said, um, too much or too little. The mind's always saying it's too much of this and too little of that. Too much, too little. So we go between these poles of getting too much of what we don't want and too little of what we do want. And because of that, we're always burning. Always burning in uh, desire and in, in fear. And he says he's content with his own self. So he achieved contentment. And yet contentment is a place within us. 
that's always available. And this is what Baba directly told me, that contentment is within, and you can find it, no matter what's happening externally. He says, he is ever liberated while still in the body. He leads his day-to-day -day life in the world normally, and even though he may appear agitated, inside he's supremely peaceful. In his attachment, there is no attachment. In his aversion, there is no aversion. You can work out whatever that means. <laughs> he's free from all gunas. He's free from uh, matter, from uh, gunas are the, are the constituents of matter. He loves all beings. He is easily liberated whilst in the body. He is never upset by suffering, nor does they desire happiness. If he has to, if he goes through suffering, he has equanimity. It doesn't mean he enjoys it, but he lives with it, and then, and so on. He never leaves the path of virtue. He never follows the path of evil. And for a yogi, it means to be connected to the self is the path of virtue. To know the self, to be connected to the highest truth, and to move away from that into ego and to lack and so on, that's the path of evil. His mind is always filled with the vibrations of chitti. He's always in touch with the divine shakti, the divine power. He is profound, steadfast, pure, and detached. He is compassionate, loving, and gracious. He's talking to every one of us. Can you find the place in you where this is true about you? This is what Bob is talking to. Such a Siddha student is liberated while living in the world. Very inspirational. And this is the vision of the Siddha. So it inspired me a lot. So, tonight's topic. Something, uh, it's been actually about two years since I did my last program on Stoicism, which is Western yoga. <clears throat> in common speech, to be a Stoic means to be strong and unflappable in the face of adversity. That's what it's come down to mean in just normal speech, to be Stoic. He's Stoic, we say. Um, to handle bad things well, uh, that is, without crumbling, without complaining, without losing your sense of who you are, without collapsing in a heap. Um, now, that's not, that's not a bad understanding of Stoicism, uh, but I would add that the ancient uh, philosophy of Stoicism is really a Western form of yoga. Uh, you can look through all of Western philosophy and so on, and it does lack the yogic insight, but Stoicism is one of the rare places where it, it is a yoga. Uh, Stoicism is the cultivation of the clear space of good feeling, the CSGF. It shows us how to attain the clear space of good feeling and how to stay in the clear space of good feeling, which is nothing but a way of talking about the yoga quest. Inside yourself, there is a clear space of good feeling. How do I know it's there? Because you know that you've had that at many times in your life. So you know it's there. 
Now, how do you get back to it? And when you lose it, how do you go to it? And when you have it, how do you hold on to it? In a sense, yoga is, is, uh, can be reduced to that struggle of the clear space of good feeling. Or another way to say that is bhavana rako, it's the way Bhagwan Nityananda would say it, to hold that feeling, hold that state. How do we lose that state? By worry, by mental torture, by tearing thoughts, by negative self-talk. All these things take us away from that state. <clears throat> so we have to be very vigilant not to allow that, that to happen. Now, in classical Stoicism, I don't find much evidence of awareness of the higher power or of Shakti, but there's definitely this psychological cultivation of the clear space of good feeling. And some of the names associated with Stoicism are Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca. One of them was a slave, Epictetus. One of them was an emperor, Marcus Aurelius. What a great emperor, philosopher, king. Plato's ideal. He was a great philosopher, great uh, and, a, and a, a emperor as well. And Seneca, who was a playwright. In fact, Seneca, by some coincidence, wrote Seneca's plays. <laughs> <clears throat> so Stoicism begins with Zeno of Citium. And we have a lovely portrait of him, an early photograph, handsome fellow, a Greek philosopher from Cyprus, and he taught in Athens. Uh, so to set the, the historical context, he lived about 200 years after the Buddha. You like that? <laughs> Looks like a... <laughs> Well, you might have been. You might have been Zeno of Citium. <coughs> we'll have to change Oya uh, Zeno Rama. <laughs> we got it. Zen. You just put an O at the end. Good. That's good. It must be true. Okay. Anyway, uh, he lived about 200 years after the Buddha and about 300 years before Jesus. So you can see, it must have been an incredible time in that period from 500 BC to, to Jesus' time. A lot of great uh, teachers, great beings, great philosophies. So here are some of uh, Zeno's aphorisms. <clears throat> okay. Uh, he said, man conquers the world by conquering himself. See how that is. He also said, now this one's interesting, steal your sensibilities. Steal. Steal in S-T-E-E-L. <clears throat> steal your sensibilities so that life shall hurt you as little as possible. Is that a paranoid stance? <laughs> so it, it means a defensive posture so that the stuff that hits you from life doesn't hurt you too much. Because life, as the Buddha said, is full of hurt. Old age, disease, and death just come at you, can't avoid it. Crap happens. Or as they say now, shit happens, right? So, so prepare yourself so that 
it, it, that you're not hurt by these things. If you live naively without understanding how life is, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get blindsided. So he says, steal yourself. Set yourself up. The next thing he said, the goal of life is living in agreement with nature. And he doesn't mean by that, he doesn't mean the great outdoors, <laughs> although there's also that. <laughs> but he means to live harmoniously with the way things are, what, what they would call in the East the Tao, the, the flow, to go, not to go against the flow of life, but to flow with it. Um, another one, it is in virtue that happiness consists. For virtue is the state of mind which tends to make the whole of life harmonious. This is a very interesting statement because he's defining virtue not as we do in moralistic terms, but he's, he's defining it in yogic terms. He's saying virtue is the state of mind which makes the whole of life harmonious. So it's the clear space of good feeling. So virtue is to stay in the clear space of good feeling, to stay in that place, because in that place, life is harmonious. And when you're in that agitated state, the state of fear, the state of anger, the state of depression, then life is not harmonious at all. So to cultivate that state, this is his path. And here's one that's very irrelevant and striking. A bad feeling is a commotion of the mind. Let me see. I wrote this myself. <laughs> I can't see. Um, a bad feeling is a commotion of the mind repugnant to reason and against nature. That's profound, I think. A bad feeling is repugnant to nature. It means you should never have a bad feeling. Now, the Shiva process doesn't teach you that, does it? But in a way, it's true. It's true that, it, that whenever you have a bad feeling, it must be that you're looking at it wrong. Because the only way that, that uh, things that you have that feeling is when you look at it in an ignorant way or a partial way. So one of the questions you can ask us Ask yourself, when you feel bad about something, is there a better way to look at this? Is there a way to look at this that gives me peace and uplifts me? You may have to have recourse to the highest philosophy, because some things in life you can only understand uh, from the highest point of view. Uh, but So this is, this is uh, Zeno, very interesting thinker. After Zeno's time, Stoicism became the most prominent philosophy in the Greek and Roman worlds. Um, it's still, it still has students. There are students of uh, Stoicism even, even today. So the next uh, and possibly most important of them all, my favorite, is Epictetus. Um, he lived in the first century after Jesus and Marcus Aurelius in the second century. So Epictetus, it's not a harmonious picture of him, is it? He looks quite agitated, doesn't he? But he must have been blissfully tranquil and wise. 
He was a former slave, and because of his wisdom, he was freed, uh, and he had a tremendously powerful intellect. And there are still uh, avid students of him. Every once in a while, I run across somebody who's studying Epictetus. He's still an inspiration. And he has so many insights, but I can't speak about him without mentioning two that have really impressed me. Now, I've, you've heard them before if you've heard me speak about them, but I'll say them again. Uh, first of all, his major insight, he makes a distinction between things that are in your control and things that you can't control. Isn't it true? There are some things you can control and some things you can't control, right? Seems true. He says that something, if something is within your power to control or create, you should make every effort to do it. <clears throat> do whatever effort is required. Don't be lazy. If it's a good thing, go for it completely. On the other hand, if something is beyond your control, if it's a situation you can't do anything about, then let it go. It's none of your business. How many times do we beat our heads against the wall when we can't affect the situation? Or we, we cling to something that's gone? Or we fantasize something that isn't? And we can't make it happen. How many times? And what is that? It's a recipe for disaster, for psychological disaster, isn't it? You can't do anything about it, so you just eat your heart out. Eat your heart out, as they used to say back in Brooklyn. Eat your heart out, baby. And so it's very rational saying, if you can do something about it, apply yourself to it. If you can't, drop it. <clears throat> so to burn in uh, things beyond our control is a completely useless form of suffering. I think it's wonderful to, to hear that and to, and to measure certain things in your life against it. It's a, an inner discipline to actually obey that, and that discipline is yoga. <clears throat> and one of the things you might notice is that external things are very often beyond your control. But I mean, there's certain things I could do. I can lift this paper. I just did it effectively. <laughs> and doesn't that feel good? <clears throat> But I can't, I can't make it fly over there with my mind. Maybe. <laughs> I'll do it later. <laughs> um, but, but our inner world can come under our control. That's something we don't know. We think the inner world just sort of happens. But actually, through meditation, through inquiry, we can... We can control the inner world, and that turns out to be quite crucial. We can work on it, and Epictetus emphasizes the freedom to work inwardly on ourselves, on our attitudes, and then we, that we come into the clear space of good feeling. And related to this is the second teaching that stands out for me. Epictetus says that everything has two handles. I love this. I used this as my New Year's message a couple of years ago. Everything has two handles. Uh, it means that, that we can decide how to feel about anything that happens. 
and we should make a rational choice in our own enlightened self-interest. If we grab the wrong handle, you can grab this handle or that handle. If you grab the wrong handle, we make ourselves and everyone else miserable. We disempower ourselves. But if we grab the right handle, life is smooth and we're at peace. So, grab the right handle. So, if there's a situation in your life that's making you eat your heart out, what does it mean? You're grabbing the wrong handle. Really, that's what Epictetus would say. So he'd say, grab the right handle. What handle is that? We'll figure it out. <laughs> and find the handle that gives you peace. Always making your inner state as the testimony, uh, 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 the, the arbiter or the final authority there. <clears throat> so it's wonderful to reflect that we have this power of choice of our attitude. You know, isn't it stupid to hold attitudes that make you miserable? And yet we do it all the time. But we, have, we do have the freedom to change the attitude. It's not serving us. Um, and this, uh, so this phrase gives new meaning to the idea of getting a grip. You get a grip on the right handle. <laughs> they used to say that in Brooklyn too, get a grip. <laughs> it must go back to Epictetus. <clears throat> and this is what Gurdjieff means when he says that uh, an unawakened person has everything happen to them an awakened person makes choices, so we can actually choose the attitude according to what it does to ourselves. Okay, now some aphorisms from, uh, from Stoicism. First one by Seneca. This is the only one I'm going to quote Seneca. Seneca was a very good playwright, uh, but this is Seneca on second education, I would say. And this is about dyes. Just as some dyes are readily absorbed by the wool, <clears throat> others only after repeated soaking and simmering, so there are some studies that show up well in our minds as soon as we learn them. So some things we learn immediately. This one, though, what would this one be? Second education, yoga, the study of spirituality. That you don't learn overnight. You have to work at it. You have to let the, the attitudes of spirituality soak into you because we weren't educated that way from early on. We were educated in the opposite way. So he says, this one, though, must permeate us thoroughly. It must soak in, giving not just a tinge of color, but a real deep dye, uh, or it cannot deliver on any of its promises. Mm -hmm. So that's why Patanjali says that the practice must go on lovingly for a very long time with devotion, and why um, Shaivism says we have to think about these noble thoughts, I am the self, I am the self again and again and again until it permeates our being, till it permeates our being. <clears throat> now a couple from Epictetus. How are you doing? You enjoying? I love this stuff. Epictetus, 
Here's one from Epictetus. To you, <clears throat> all you have seems small. To me, all I have seems great. He has good attitude. Your desire is insatiable. Mine is satisfied. Mm -hmm. This is about contentment, huh? See children thrusting their hands in a narrow necked jar and striving to pull out the nuts and figs it contains. If they fill the hand, they cannot pull it out again. <clears throat> and they fall to tears. You know, that's a familiar um, thought. It must come from Epictetus. Um, let go a few of them and you can draw out the rest. So if you let the little few go, your hand can come out. You too, let your desire go. Covet not so many things and you will obtain. That's one of his. Another one. Nothing great is created suddenly, any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me you desire a fig, I answer you, there must be time. Let it first blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. So what's that about patience, isn't it? And understanding, understand process. <clears throat> and then uh, this is what uh, Gita was talking about, quoting Epictetus, but she didn't know it. Don't explain your philosophy, embody it. <clears throat> so keep your key dry. <laughs> this is the second education. So it's the difference between first and second education. In first education, you explain the philosophy. In second education, it becomes part of you. You die yourself in it. Question, another one. Man is not worried by real problems so much as by his imagined anxieties about real problems. <laughs> The emphasis always on the inner state, the way we regard the attitude. Another one, attach yourself to what is spiritually superior regardless of what other people think or do. That's a hard one. Go to the highest no matter what the culture, the, the attitude uh, is. Don't let it phase you. Hold to your true aspirations no matter what is going on around you. And I think all of us are confronted by that eventually in our life, that we have to stand by these principles despite what uh, others might say about it. And I like this one. He who laughs at himself never runs out of things to laugh at. <laughs> Another one. Any person capable of angering you becomes your master. There are two ways that that could be. He owns you, if you get, and he also becomes your teacher in a way. Um, he can anger you only when you permit yourself to be disturbed by him. Again, it's that choice and it's attitude. Another one, all religions must be tolerated for every man must get to heaven his own way. That's a hard one to let people... Uh, follow their own path, even if it's a wrong one. <laughs> That's hard for me. Another one, God gave man two ears but only one mouth that he might hear twice as much as he speaks. <laughs> He's funny, isn't he? Yeah. Okay.
So that's uh, some from uh, Epictetus. Now a few from Marcus Aurelius. We showed Marcus Aurelius? No? Well, let's show old Marcus, the emperor. Remember, he's an emperor. Oh, and isn't he regal? Yeah. Well, he was, he was, what was he, Roman? He was Roman. He was Roman, Marcus Aurelius. He was Roman. No, that makes sense then. <laughs> yeah. 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 <clears throat> he said, and it's based on, he was a real practical politician as well as a great philosopher. Uh, little siphons the joy of life more surely than the wasted energy of indignation at how others have failed to behave in accordance with what we expected of them. Nothing sucks your life energy more than, than uh, being indignant and going on about how people have let you down. Very good. <clears throat> Here's a long one, you ready? This is really, Part of it is how to use your own rationality, your own mind, to give yourself peace by thinking it through. He says, whenever a person's wickedness or insensitivity offends you, you should immediately ask yourself. Okay, so you see, he's, he's living practical life. He's political. He's in the middle of the court. He's dealing with all kinds of real situations. And so he's dealing with this, every, you know, people act weirdly and, and they're full of ego and they're full of pride and they're pushy and they're disgusting and uh, selfish and, and, you know, he sees all this and he thinks, how can I maintain my philosophical poise in the midst of this? He's got to be a king. He can't be not just in a cave, not a yogi in a cave where it might be easy. So he says, he's, ask yourself when the people really behave badly, so is it possible for there to be no wicked or insensitive people in the world? It isn't. <clears throat> and you should therefore stop demanding the impossible. <laughs> oh, oh, he just, just happened to meet one. Just happened to come through here. <clears throat> He's just one of that kind of person who must necessarily exist in the world. <clears throat> you should keep the same thought readily available for when you're faced with devious and untrustworthy people and people who are flawed in any way. This is art of uh, kingcraft, isn't it? He's very uh, real politic, you know, real, real reality. As soon as you remind yourself that it's impossible for such people not to exist, you'll be kinder to each and every one of them. <clears throat> it's also helpful immediately to consider what virtue nature has granted us human beings to deal with any given offense. Gentleness, for instance, to counter discourteous people. So think of what virtue you need to deal with this. Patience, another one, spirituality, you know, what, what good quality do you need? You like that one? <clears throat> Here's another one. The things of the world cannot affect the soul. They lie inert outside it. 
and only internal beliefs disturb it. Things of, the, things of the world can't disturb the soul, only your own beliefs disturb it. The world is, lies outside just a, a lump of matter. That's when you, but you, when you think about things a certain way. <clears throat> uh, I've got three more. Ready? And then we'll meditate. Is this too much to take in? It's really, it's nectar, isn't it? No? <clears throat> Maybe only if you're solid. If you're peculiar, I don't know. The peculiar is like this? It's great, isn't it? Great, yeah, I love it. All right. I'm peculiar. Look at my life. Is that not peculiar? A peculiar wouldn't do this talk. What? A peculiar wouldn't do this talk. Really? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, I'm the first peculiar to do this talk. <laughs> Here's one. You'll find that none of the people who make you lose your temper has done anything that might affect your mind for the worse. So they can't, they haven't done anything. They've done something to your body and to, you know, but they haven't done anything to your mind. And outside of the mind, there's nothing that is truly detrimental or harmful for you. So they can't really hurt you. <clears throat> After all, you even have the resources in the form of your ability to think rationally, to appreciate that he was likely to commit that fault, because he's one of those people. <clears throat> Yet you forgot it, and now are surprised that he did exactly that. <laughs> he, he used to go home and write in his notebooks, uh, you know, after difficult encounters in the court every day. It's really brilliant. <clears throat> and then uh, this is a long one, which I call the Shiva process one. Okay. Always define or describe to yourself every impression that occurs to your mind. This is making a statement. And so that you can clearly see what the thing is like in its entirety, stripped to its essence, and tell yourself its proper name and the names of the elements of which it consists and into which it will be resolved. So do inquiry. Nothing is more conducive to objectivity than the ability to methodically and honestly to test everything that you come across in life and always to look at things in such a way you consider what kind of part each of them plays and what kind of universe and what value it has for the universe as a whole. So that's, that's deep, isn't it? <clears throat> this is more practical and direct, the final one, then we'll meditate. The cucumber is bitter, throw it out. There are brambles on the path, go around them. That's all you need to know, nothing more. Don't demand to know why such things exist. Don't ask why. So you got a bitter cucumber, throw it out. Huh? Wonderful. <clears throat> okay, we'll meditate. <clears throat> so let's do an epic titian. <laughs> epic.
petition, a petition, a petition, meditation. <clears throat> and so, Epictetus would say that there's a clear space of good feeling within every one of us. And that it is an affront to nature for us to be in misery, to be depressed, to be angry, to be anxious. All these things are because of unskilled thinking. And so we should entertain thoughts that uplift us, thoughts that lead to the clear space of good feeling. We should let go thoughts that take us away from that. One great method developed in India is the mantras, to say the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, over and over and let thoughts go, with the idea that as thoughts disappear, that what underlies them is that clear space of good feeling, and that will emerge. Or you can meditate on a great thought. The one Baba gave me, I am the self. I am consciousness. There is peace within me. There is love within me. There is joy within me. There is contentment within me. Meditate on one of those great thoughts. And we'll meditate now for 10 minutes in a most stoical manner. And once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And two years from now, we'll do stoicism again. <laughs> Or maybe a year and a half, if you give me good feedback. <laughs> so let's, let's meditate now for 10 minutes. 